Luke chapter 7 for our next conversation. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. As you're finding it, let me read uh, the Carl Hafner version of a parable that's part of that whole conversation. Verses 41 and 42 goes like this. Two drivers got busted for speeding. Driver A was doing 85 miles per hour in a school zone that was under construction with a blood alcohol level twice the legal limit. He was handcuffed and issued a fine of $5,000. Driver B was cruising along with the traffic on the interstate when she got pulled over for doing 72 and a 55. The officer slapped her with a $500 ticket. Both drivers showed up in court. Driver A cried, I made a terrible mistake. You should lock me up and recycle the key, but I am begging you, Your Honor, have mercy on me, for I cannot pay this ticket. Very well, said the judge. I will drop all charges against you. Next, driver B approached the bench. Your Honor, she said, I broke the law and I deserve this fine, but I'm a single mom and I lost my job. Very well, said the judge. I will drop all charges against you. Here's a question for you. Which driver do you suppose loved the judge more after that? So you keep that question in mind as we back up now and see the conversation that prompted Jesus to tell the parable. Verse 36. Now this is one of the rare stories that's found in all four of the Gospels. Uh, Although there is some debate as to whether or not it's one or two stories, uh, the parable, however, is unique to Luke. Of the 35 parables in the Gospel of Luke, 19 of them are unique to him. This is one of those. So when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, this story, to really appreciate it, you've got to understand, it is just teeming with awkward moments. What's the most awkward moment you can remember? I think back to that day when I went to my uh, future father-in-law to ask for permission to marry his daughter. It was so awkward. Now, he was one of my professors in the seminary. We had been dating for over five years, so it wasn't like this was a big surprise, and yet he was not going to make this easy. Knocked on the door. He invited me in. I had set up an appointment, so I think he kind of knew what to expect, and he just stared at me. Started squirming in my seat. I said, "Um, you know, um, Dr. Uh, Honorable Grusbeck, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really... Uh, dawned of your father, fond of your daughter, and uh, I was just uh, wondering if I could get your blessing to ask her to marry me. He just sat there. He he just stared, and uh, 
I didn't know what to do. It was just awkward. And uh, I, I knew because I had put myself through school selling books, uh, Uncle Arthur's Bible books and Bibles and so on. And one thing they teach student literature evangelists is when you ask... When you make the clothes, the next person who speaks loses. So I was determined I was not going to say anything. But he was not going to, so I just sat there squirming, moving uncomfortably. I grew a beard. He says nothing. Finally, he breaks the awkward silence, and he says, uh, and what assurance do I have, young man, that you are going to take adequate care of my daughter? I wasn't expecting that question on the quiz. And so I just blurted out the only thing that came to mind in that moment, which in retrospect maybe wasn't the best response I could have given. I just said, well, sir, um, you know, I took care of my dog Dusty when I, I was a little kid, you know, before he got hit by a truck. There's that, but... Um, and he just stared. Uh, apparently, that wasn't the best answer I could have done. Now, he was a godly man in every respect, except I argue to this day that he enjoyed that awkwardness way more than a Christian should have. Uh, but anyway, so now we go to this scene, and you got to understand, it's just Awkward moment after awkward moment begins right at the outset. When Jesus arrives, you would expect the host of the home to greet the guest with a kiss. Now, the way it worked in the ancient world, if you were equal on the social status ladder and so on, then you would kiss your guest on the cheek. If, which would have been the case in this story, the guest is of higher status, Jesus being a well-respected rabbi, then in deference you would kiss that guest on the hand. So a lot of times we think of the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas betrayed Jesus, that he kissed him on the cheek. Probably what he did was kissed him on the hand in deference to this rabbi. And so that was awkward because nobody is there to greet him with a kiss. Moreover, in the ancient world, you would always have the guest there for, or the host there for the guest to wash his feet because the roads were dusty and their feet were dirty and it wasn't a fun job. But again, in kind of deference to the guest of honor, you would be there with a basin of water to wash his feet. Not only does the host, Simon, fail to be there to wash his feet, he doesn't even station a servant at the door to wash Jesus' feet. And this is not just some minor faux pas. This is an in-your-face, awkward slap. He doesn't even have a basin of water there so that Jesus can wash his own feet. Moreover... He would expect to have olive oil there to anoint his head. There's not that. And then, if you think it's awkward at the outset, this woman crashes the party. 
Never in a million years would she ever receive an invitation to come to a party like this. But Jesus has so radically transformed her life, she doesn't care what people think. She doesn't care about her reputation in town. She has to get to Jesus. And she's so undone by this teacher, she just throws herself at his feet. Then she lets down her hair. Again, very awkward in that culture. In fact, this was grounds for divorce. If a woman were to let down her hair in public, it was considered too provocative for most men to handle. And so you just never would do that. It was so awkward. And then she opens this flask of perfume that just the aroma permeates the air, just overwhelms the space. And she pours it. A woman of her profession would use this professionally, but she doesn't need it anymore. Jesus has so changed her life. She pours it on his feet. So it's a very awkward scene. When we pick up now the conversation, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. The implication here is you're not going to like this very much. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. It's the only place in the New Testament where this Greek word for money lender is used. Now, in that culture... Uh, money lenders were very shady characters. It would be a little bit like Jesus starting a story now, saying, I want to tell you a story about two bookies in over their heads to a loan shark named Vito. And then the story. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? That's the question hanging in the air now. Which one is going to love him more? Let me tell you what inspired me to write my paraphrase of this passage. We were coming home from camp one summer night, a couple summers ago. My daughter was working there at the Ohio summer camp, Mohaven, and I had not really been up there very much, and so we were coming home late at night when I got pulled over by a motorcycle cop because I was doing 42 and a 35. Uh, and he said, you know, the speed limit here is such, a, and I explained to him, I'm really sorry, but uh, I had no idea. I'm not from We live an hour and a half south of here. I'm not from this area. I didn't know what the speed limit was. And he said, well, tell you what, I'm not going to write you up, but just slow it down, and now you know. And I said, okay, fair enough. So as we're driving home then that night, my youngest daughter, Claire, is in the back seat. She's the one pictured on this book over here. Uh, She starts asking me, hey, Dad, tell me some other stories of when you got pulled over by police. 
She says, I know there's lots and lots of them, um, but we've got an hour and a half. And uh, she said, tell me those stories. And I said, ah, I don't know that I want to do that. And she said, no, 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 tell me the one up in Bellingham. Remember that? Well, she's heard me use that story in many sermon illustrations before. And so she's fairly familiar with that story. But So I told her, you know, Coming home late one night, had a couple of hours until we got from Bellingham to, to Seattle where we lived, and uh, I was fighting to stay awake. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning when I look in the rearview mirror, and suddenly I was wide awake. You know that feeling, don't you? Nothing like lights to shoot adrenaline through your body, and so I pulled over, and as this officer was walking to my window, I knew I had a problem because I couldn't tell if this was a man or a woman, so I didn't know whether to address this officer as sir or ma'am because he looked like a woman, but she walked like a man, and I just couldn't tell. Uh, But before I said anything, I noticed the badge. Barbara Qualley. Oh, okay, I got it. Rolled down my window. Good evening, ma'am. She just stared. She had a face so sour she could suck buttons off a sofa. She growled, I've been waiting for you all night. Said, and I've been hurrying to get here. Uh, And she said, do you have any idea how fast you were going? I said, I have no idea, but I'm sure you do. And she said, you were doing 85 and a 55. That's reckless driving. I should handcuff you and take you to jail. I'm really sorry, but see, I'm a, I'm a minister, and I've been, I always get that in some way. Uh, you know, and I say, I'm, I'm like, one of your colleagues, because we're all trying to keep the bad guys off the streets, right? And we're all trying to change people, and we're, we're together in this, and I've been ministering all day to people, trying to make bad people good, like you do so well. And, uh, you know, so I'm kind of going off on this little theological tangent, as I tend to do with cops. And uh, she said, okay, she says, also you were swerving all over the road. Have you been drinking? And again, I said, no, I'm a pastor. I don't drink. I No, no I'm just really tired. And she said, well, that's how accidents happen. You're tired, and it's late at night, and not paying attention, and speeding. And I said, I am, you're right. I am so sorry. And then her face softened a bit, and she said, tell you what, I'm only going to write you up for doing 65, and I won't write you up for swerving all over the road. I said, oh, thank you. So she goes back to the car to write me up the ticket. And I said to my wife, well, she treated me much better than I deserved. So I'm very thankful. Could have been a lot worse. Uh, And then she comes back to the window and she says, "Uh, Mr. Um, Hafner, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I've decided to just let you off the hook. I'm not going to write you up for anything. I have never been so tempted to kiss a woman that looks like a man. Uh, And I I told her, too. I said, oh, ma'am, I could kiss you. And she said, you have the right to remain silent. Uh, 
I'd prefer that you just drive the speed limit. And so I peeled back onto the interstate, singing the doxology. I was so thankful. You know, and so I've told that story often, and Claire loved it. And we're still driving home from summer camp. And she said, what about that time in Spokane? Now, I've not told that story a lot in sermons. She had not heard it there. And just the mention of it, just resurrecting the memory, turned my stomach into a knot. And I said, I, I don't remember that one, sweetheart. <laughs> said, no, no, you remember. You're, you, you know, when we were going to see the beauty and the beast. Tell me that story, Dad. Eh, I'd rather not. Oh, no, no, tell me that story. We were taking a few days up, if you know the area up there at Camp Myvedon. Uh, just the family, having a good time, relaxing and so on. When uh, the kids said, hey, we want to go to the IMAX in Spokane to see the Beauty and the Beast. It was 12.30 in the afternoon, and I said, well, there's a 1 o'clock show. We can make it to the IMAX in a half an hour. And my wife immediately said, we can't get to the IMAX in a half an hour. And I said, oh, yes, we can. And Sheree said, uh, Carl, I worked at Myvedon for seven summers. We lived in Spokane. I've made this trip hundreds of times. I'm telling you, we cannot get there in a half an hour. I said, well, we shouldn't be arguing about it. We're just wasting time. It's going to get harder. Trust me, we can get there in a half an hour. And I was right. You can get there in a half an hour. As we pulled in to the parking lot at the IMAX, 30 minutes later, there was a cop right behind us. And uh, when I saw that, honestly, I... I knew, okay, this is going to be bad. He, he walked up to the window, and he just stood there, staring. And finally, he said, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I started shaking and crying, and I said, I have no excuse. I am such an idiot. He didn't argue with that. <laughs> he said, um, I, I, I don't even know what to, what to say to you. He said, I couldn't even catch you. And I got a turbo engine. And it was all through construction. He says, oh, why would you endanger the lives of other motorists and your kids and yourself? And what could be so important? And, and I told him, it's, it, it, it's so stupid that I just wanted to prove my wife wrong. And I wanted, we're going to see the beauty and the beast. And he said, look, 
If I were to write you up for this, I would wreck your life. I doubt you would ever be able to afford insurance. You would go to jail. Um, I don't know if you could get your license back. He said, you look like a nice person and a great family, and I I don't want to do that. Um, But you have to promise me you will never drive like that again. I can promise you I never will and I never have and I never will and he took off and we just sat there for probably 20 minutes I I couldn't even I I, I couldn't drive we didn't go see the beauty and the beast I I just sat there you know what's so ironic is I can be really hardcore and self-righteous when it comes to things like drunk drivers, why we should crack down on them, but I don't see how my behavior is more dangerous than that. I see the wrongdoing of others, but when it comes to my own story, well, it just doesn't seem that bad. So let me ask you a question. Of the three officers, the one up by Camp Mohaven, Bellingham, and then Spokane, which police officer do you think I love the most? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Because Simon doesn't really see her. He sees an object for his contempt. He sees the town harlot, but he doesn't actually see the woman. Then Jesus says, I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Jesus is so gracious. He is so humble to Simon here. He doesn't say, Simon, you didn't even wash my feet, but rather he is so gracious. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus is not saying, Simon, you're really a righteous man. You've hardly sinned at all. You don't need grace. God doesn't have a whole lot in you to forgive. He's not saying that. See, Simon really thinks that God is getting a pretty good deal with him. He thinks of himself as the smaller, the lesser debtor. And he wonders, why can't people be more righteous like I am? He's just poisoned with this spirit of judgmentalism and superiority. See, the question that this story raises is simply, who is the bigger debtor in the room? And Simon thinks he knows who the bigger debtor is, but in Jesus' conversation with him, it's clear, no, she is not the bigger debtor. The bigger debtor is the person who thinks he has no need of God's forgiveness in grace. The bigger 
Sin in the room is the sin of lips that will not kiss and knees that won't kneel and eyes that won't weep and hands that will not serve and perfume that never leaves the jar. It's the sin of a heart that will not break, a life that will not change, and a soul that is just too stubborn and proud to love. See, there's two sins in the room. The sin of Simon and the sin of Mary. The sin of Mary is that really bad sin, the external sin that everybody sees and everybody condemns, everybody except Jesus. But there's a bigger sin in the room. It's the sin of Simon, the sin of the righteous person, the internal sin, the sin of the heart. And what makes this the graver sin is that he doesn't see it. That's why it's so insidious. That's why it's so dangerous in our spiritual lives because we don't even recognize it, do we? No, over the course of 30 years as a pastor, I have seen a steady stream of people come through my office confessing all manner of sin. But it's almost always Sins of the flesh, sins of Mary, sins that everybody sees, everybody condemns. And often in these confessions, there is this sense of desperation where the person says, look, pastor, if you don't help me, I'm going to die here. You've got to help me, please, pastor. Help me with my mismanaged anger. I almost lashed out and struck my two-year-old last night. And I'm afraid if I don't get a handle on this, I'm going to go to jail or do something I will regret for the rest of my life. Help me. And you just hear this desperation in their voice. Like, I know it's destroying me. You've got to help me. Pastor, it's this eating disorder. I'm afraid I'm going to kill myself if you don't help me. Pastor, it's this addiction that I have. If you don't help me, I'm afraid. Never in 30 years I had anybody come into my office and say, Pastor, you've got to help me with my spirit of judgmentalism. I mean, I'm just so self-righteous. I just have this air of superiority that I lord over other people in the church. When they struggle with sins different than mine, then I just really come down hard on them. And I know this is destroying my relationship with God. You've got to help me. Now, that's the truth. It, in fact, is. We don't see it, do we? There is no 12-step program for the spiritually smug. So we come down real hard on the sins of the flesh, but the sins of the heart. For those of us who grew up in the church, who have obeyed all the rules for all the elder brothers in the church, we have this tendency to think that when it comes to God paying it all for my sins, he's going to get a little bit of a refund. Because my sins aren't that bad. Jeremiah is right when he declares the heart is deceitful above all things 
and desperately wicked. That's my heart. Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. See, we see the evil in others with blinding clarity and we are so clearly blind to the sins polluting our own hearts. The prophet says it well, our very best works of righteousness, the holiest things that we can do, amount to a mountain of bloody rags. The best we have. The very best works that we can muster flow out of hearts that are corrupt and selfish, insidious, dark, and evil. The best we have. Garbage. See, here's the good news of this story. That God can not only change and save a prostitute, but he can also change and save a pastor. His grace encompasses all of us, the sins of the heart, the sins of the flesh, if we are but willing to accept. I love the way that Jerry Bridges puts it. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. One more time. Your merry days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days, your Simon days, are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. We are all in need of God's grace, aren't we? Father in heaven, we gather here just grateful and humble that you did not condemn bad people because we are all bad but rather you came to save each of us. You did not come to condemn, but to save. And so God, we just humbly acknowledge your gift on the cross. We say thank you, in Jesus' name.